This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that explores what it will take to have a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. time together each week begins with an explanation from Tim Keller about one of six essential elements of a missionary encounter. Next come conversations with scholars and practitioners of various sorts who study these things and practice them in diverse contexts throughout Europe and North America. Today's episode has two major movements. Both of them are somewhat inward focused. That is, they have less to do with strategies for engaging the world and more to do with how to help Christians maintain their faith distinctives while being discipled by the broader culture. In the first movement, Tim Keller explains the need for counter-catechesis, which is the process of teaching biblical truth by comparing it and contrasting it with dominant messages from the broader culture. To illustrate this process, we speak with Tim Vroegdenel, a pastor in Amsterdam, who has experimented with innovative ways to do just this. A second movement in this episode has to do with the kind of community that makes counter-catechesis possible. Dr. Keller describes this community as a moral ecology that makes biblical teaching plausible by embodying it in relationships, as well as through worship and spiritual practices. To illustrate this dynamic, we spoke with Danae Pierre, who directs a very specific type of moral ecology, a citywide, trans-denominational church planting network in Phoenix, Arizona. As always, we begin with Tim Keller. Counter-catechesis for a digital age. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you heard it said, before he would go on and say, I say unto you. See Matthew chapter 5. He did this not only to teach the truth, but also to do so in contrast to what the authorities of the day were saying. Our instruction also needs to follow the same pattern. We need catechesis as well as counter-catechesis, using biblical doctrine to both deconstruct the beliefs of culture and answer questions of the human heart that the culture's narratives cannot. By using the word catechesis, I am not necessarily calling for the use of the actual catechism method as question and answer. Now, I must say I am a proponent of that method, but that's not my point here. I use this word catechesis to refer to the way churches have instructed and formed Christians who are shaped by the Bible and Christian teaching rather than by the world. The fact is that we have virtually stopped doing catechesis as it was done in the past. As a result, we've forgotten three things about Christian formation. First, that catechesis was always counter-catechesis. During the Reformation, there was an explosion of catechesis. New catechisms were written by the hundreds. It is worth noting that the Protestant catechisms give less space to the doctrine of the Trinity or to the doctrine of Christ and far more to the doctrine of salvation, like justification by faith and regeneration, and to the sacraments and to the church. This was because they were not merely incorporating their members into their teaching, they were also inoculating their members against the only real alternative to being a Protestant at that time, which was being a Catholic. So the Protestant catechisms presented biblical doctrines over against the Catholic catechisms, which also made them effective counter-catechesis. They not only constructed a worldview, but they dismantled and vaccinated against the dominant alternatives. The problem is that, as indispensable as the best of the catechisms are still, such as the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Catechism, Luther's Short and Large Catechisms, as indispensable as they are, they are now insufficient. The main alternative to being a Protestant Christian is now some form of Western secularism. The secular age has a very definite catechism of its own, and while our current instructional modes and catechisms may be biblically accurate, they do not present the truth in a way that clearly dismantles secular narratives and undermines secular beliefs. Secular narratives are beliefs about reality that most cultural institutions inculcate as inarguable, obvious truths. They come to us now dozens of times a day, or even an hour, in ads, tweets, music, stories, opinion pieces, etc. They are narratives about identity. You have to be true to yourself. Freedom. You should be free to live any way you choose as long as you don't hurt anyone. Happiness. You must do what makes you happiest. You can't sacrifice that for anyone. Science. The only way to solve our problems is through objective science and facts. Morality. 
Everyone has the right to decide what is right or wrong themselves. Justice? We are obligated to work for the freedom, rights, and good of everyone in the world. History? History is bending towards social progress and away from religion. While each of these cultural messages is partly true, and indeed, despite distortions, rooted historically in Christian teaching, they are all theologically mistaken and pragmatically harmful to human life. Many biblical teachings and truths undermine, weaken, or balance out all of these narratives, and yet our current instruction does not show this. We need a counter-catechism that explains, refutes, and re-narrates the world's catechisms to Christians. In our counter-catechesis, each of the basic narratives of the secular catechism will have to be identified, stated with examples from today's culture, affirmed in part because it usually represents a distortion or idolatrous imbalance of something true, subverted and critiqued, and finally shown to be fulfilled in its best form only in Jesus Christ. In the content of their character, James Davison Hunter and Ryan Olson explain that character can never be imparted only in a classroom. Rather, it must be imparted in a community. Martin Luther King Jr. is an example of this principle. He's often lifted up, rightly, as an example of courage and commitment to justice, but Martin Luther King Jr. could not have been produced in a classroom. He could not have been produced by textbooks alone. He was produced by the African-American church. Hunter and Olson call the kind of community that forges character a moral ecology. This is a community with the following elements. A moral ecology first answers the question, why be good? The answer cannot simply be, because we say so. A strong moral ecology requires an account of the cosmos that grounds moral standards. The Bible, of course, does this, grounding its moral norms in the character of God, and in a created human nature ordered toward certain goods, such as the worship of the true God, the importance of work and family, and sacrificial love of one's neighbor. Second, a moral ecology must answer the question, what specifically is good? What is right worship, true love of neighbor, good work, and so on? Here again, we have the moral instruction of the Bible. In particular, the Ten Commandments, the Book of Proverbs, the Sermon on the Mount, 1 Corinthians 13, as well as centuries of moral and ethical reflection on these texts. Third, a moral ecology answers the question, what is not good? by contrasting biblical teaching with the moral values and discourse or lack of them in the culture. We must call out the practices and habits of heart within our society that lead not to human thriving, but to personal and social deterioration. Fourth, a moral ecology involves imagination, answering the question, who is good? It is not enough to merely give abstract principles. Our hearts are captured more by stories than abstractions. All moral ecologies must provide actual compelling embodiments of the moral principles. There have always been at least two kinds. First of all, there are heroes and examples of the past. These exemplars can and should be both fictional and historical. It's important for writers, artists, filmmakers, and others to tell stories that point to the realities of good and evil. But secondly, contemporary models in one's own community are necessary. A moral ecology must have actual persons in the community to embody the standards in an attractive way. Finally, a moral ecology involves moral discourse, answering the question, how can we be good in daily life? Moral discourse is a dialogue of people asking, how does the principle apply in this situation? What is the right thing to do here? Why is a moral ecology so crucial? The crisis is this. Despite its incoherent moral cosmology, Secular culture has created an enormously powerful, constantly immersive moral ecology through the digital revolution that overwhelms the two or three hours a week Christians worship and study in church. The amount of time we spend on our phones in a day, the number of images and videos and repetitive slogans we see, make the most immersive set of practices ever. It engages the imagination with narratives. It makes the influence and consumption of TV, already a concern a generation ago, look tiny by comparison. Those consuming digital content are being deeply catechized more hours in a week and more effectively than anything the church is doing. It would not be going too far to call it brainwashing of the purportedly benign type seen in George Orwell's 1984. It is no surprise that so many young people raised in the church, taught and instructed for years, say, I don't see what's wrong with two people having sex if they really love each other. Alarmed parents can point them to biblical texts, but they won't be effective 
because the underlying narratives that make such a view of sex plausible, narratives of identity and freedom and morality, these narratives were never identified as such and exposed as implausible. We have to learn to form Christians who are shaped more by the biblical narrative than by cultural narratives. James K.A. Smith has helped us to see that character formation flows as much from the engagement of the imagination through liturgical worship, art, and story as it does from intellectual instruction. Our work of counter-catechesis should therefore include the following. New tools of catechesis that are formed to present the basics of Christian truth as a direct contrast to the narratives of late modern culture. In other words, you heard it said, but I say unto you. Should also include worship that combines ancient patterns of liturgy with culturally contextualized forms. It should also include use of the arts to convey the Christian story and theological training of both ministers and lay leaders that equips them to carry out these kinds of formative practices. And finally, it must include a rediscovery of rich devotional practices that are nearly extinct because of the busyness of our schedules. This process of formation is part of the inward move of a missionary encounter. Done well, this formation will equip Christians to make an outward move into their workplaces and other spheres of influence. Most of my secular friends have no thought about the idea, is there a God or not? They simply, there's no question for them. So if, if, if there is an opportunity to bring the word God into the play, I can immediately give a first thought that I think important about the idea of God. Why is it helpful? Why, what, what do, do, I, do I really feel connected to someone or a higher reality? And people are listening. This is Tim Vroegdenhill describing the advantages of being a pastor in his almost entirely secular context of Amsterdam. Tim planted City Kirk in Amsterdam city center in 2015 and has authored two books, Stand Up Theology and Open Like Never Before. Most of the people Tim encounters have never met a pastor before, and he enjoys being an oddity. It's like uh, somebody wants to sell you something if you've seen it uh, 10 times, you think, oh, no, not that again. I've seen that and so on. But if it's brand new, you have not seen it. You say, oh, uh, tell me, what, what what do you try me to sell? What is it useful? Uh, uh, a, a much more open way of listening and asking questions. I think that's the, that's the benefit of the situation we are in. I met Tim shortly after the publication of his first book, Stand Up Theology. While the bulk of this episode is about Christian formation... Our conversation began with Tim explaining a creative form of evangelism that, over the years, has led him to think more about discipleship, which for today's purposes, at least, we will call counter-catechesis. Here's how Tim describes stand-up theology. Everybody knows what stand-up comedy is. Most of all, not uh, especially about a character or about the jokes that are made, but it's, it's a sort of freestyle. It's an art. People are standing just on the stage and have... have great ideas and and uh, um, and then there's also a thing that's called stand-up philosophy there are some guys at least in Amsterdam I'm sure also in, in, in other cities that are practicing stand-up philosophy so these people are able to talk about Nietzsche or Schopenhauer in a way that's also interesting for people who do not know anything about Nietzsche or Schopenhauer and I thought if that is possible it, it should be possible as well to do this in, in a theological style. So then the idea of stand-up theology was there. So in practice, it means um, there is a theme. Uh, it can be fear of missing out or love in times of Tinder. And then um, I just sell tickets. Normally, uh, 40 or 50 or 60 people show up. Most of the time, it's, it's about an hour. And sometimes I, I stop and then a musician takes over. So there's also some, some music in, in the air. The whole thing is about uh, one hour and, and 50 minutes. And then I'm done. People are just listening. So there's no interaction. I'm asking questions all the time, making jokes all the time. So I suggest the interaction, but there is no real interaction. And then there are drinks and people are free to respond and give their comments. It's the style of the theater. People come for inspiration. And because of the buying of the ticket, they buy the right to like it or dislike it. 
And in that role of a performer, I'm totally free to speak about biblical sources, um, biblical stories, but also about philosophical questions on God. And in the end, also about my, my personal belief. If it's Easter or Christmas, I, I'm very happy to tell what, what does it mean to me. And most of the time I have to think about that. Why do I celebrate Easter this year? What what does it mean to me? Well, this this is part of the script, and uh, it's uh, proven in our context that that this is a very helpful way for um, secular people um, who are not showing up on Sunday morning. How did you decide which topics are the most relevant, most important things for you to address? Yeah, I would say in 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 the end, it's gut feeling. But that's not totally true because I'm I'm trained as a minister to to connect uh, the biblical message to to all things that are happening in reality uh, to what what the newspapers are talking about what's going on social media so there is my my training mindset where is the gospel relevant where is the Bible relevant but you can also begin at the other end uh, and and think oh oh everybody is talking about uh, fear of missing out now. Most of the time, the starting point is let's try to to make a program on this, but it's the same thing as 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 you choose a, a biblical text. When I made the fear of missing out program, it was I think three or four years ago. Almost nobody in the Netherlands uh, um, knew that 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 idea. So then I started with, do you know what what FOMO is all about? No, never heard about it. Fear of missing out. Uh, and oh yeah, I I I didn't know the word, but I understand the feeling. Yeah, that's what I have all the time. Now that, that, that's very helpful in communicating because you show, as Tim Keller says all the time, you show that you understand what's going on in your culture, or that you're curious about it, and that you want to understand what's what's going on. Okay, so how do we get from something like fear of missing out to the gospel of Jesus Christ? In my case, um, most of the time this works in, in two stages. In the first stage, my most basic sentence is a sentence of the philosopher Charles Taylor, who says in his big volume, uh, Secular Age, I think the most important sentence is this, late modern Western people are well equipped for almost everything, but they find it hard, Taylor says, to find access to moral and spiritual sources. That's very hard for them. And then he, he describes uh, the, the effects of that. So my starting point is always, these people, my audience, they, they um, are very good in their understandings, are well-educated, most of them. Um, but, but my guess is they have not um, the right access to moral and spiritual sources. And that's what I bring into play. Could be secular moral uh, sources, a, a very good example or a story, a sort of hero story, is, is very helpful and spiritual sources are, are also available in in, uh, in a rich variety so that's my first stage and then the second stage is applied to the to the fomo uh, theme do i know um, a biblical story that i can use for the deepening part of the program i want to make so i've talked about fomo uh, for about 10 minutes or 15 minutes where is the bridge which story can i bring into the play and in this program, I choose the, simply the story of Genesis 3. I just tell my people, this: the story goes like this. There is a garden and there are two people and you know their names. They're Adam and Eve. And then at once there is a voice. And the voice whispers, you think you have everything, but, but maybe it's not true. Maybe around the corner there's another party going on. I simply retell that story in typical FOMO associations. The, the funny thing is, I, uh, and th these are experiences for myself. I think, oh, this is, this is helpful for me, being very familiar with that story, but it's also a hard story uh, uh, because you've heard it so, so many times. But, but maybe here's a real FOMO in, 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 in the play. Uh, that's the point of talking. And if you believe there is a gospel, and I do, there is, there must be some good news on the great question Maybe there's always another party going on and I'm not invited and I'm not there. You can easily choose the parable of the prodigal son to address it. You can use quotations of Jesus and you can end with that scripture itself ends with a, with a feast. And, and we are invited and it, it's never going to stop. And there will be no voice anymore who whispers in our eye, etc., etc. Et well, these are the 
are the basic lines and once I found them it's easy to communicate and talk about it it's fun but it's it's most of the time it's quite a bit of work to to find out where the connections between a cultural phenomenon and the biblical sources uh, where they where they really are and where you can can make your points in a credible way so far this is a conversation about something like evangelism but as Tim begins to talk about confronting and countering dominant cultural narratives, it becomes clearer that this experiment in stand-up theology is also something like counter-catechesis. I still think it important to criticize the bigger cultural narratives, but my starting point is that I'm totally part of any cultural narrative I'm talking about. So I'm never talking against a narrative that is not part of me. It's impossible for me to to preach a sermon like, oh, uh, people, this is a terrible city. There's so much sexual uh, liberty and look to all the... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for all the liberty that is there in our city. I do not want to go back to the times that you just had to do what your father and mother were saying. And, and sometimes I, I'm worried about are we may, uh, maybe we are much too open uh, in, in, in this and, and divorce is too easy or whatsoever. But that's, that's my story. So I, I criticize also my own cultural assumptions and not only in, in, in the sexuality part, but also, for example, why, why the sudden outburst of anxiety about the climate we're living the way we live for, for decades already, most of us. And only a small minority of people is warning all the time. And, and now there's a report and, and we are worried. But how, how deep is that? And, and are we really willing to change things? Well, if, if, if you think like this, you can uh, be very critical, uh, even to others, eh, to politicians or whatsoever. But it's, it's never a, a different cultural framework than the thing I'm... I'm Part of. Let me make another another illustration. Uh, maybe that's helpful. Uh, I'm a, a word that I'm using a lot is the word soul poverty. So people are poor in in spirit, and and actually that's a, a word of the German uh, sociologist Max Weber, sort of the father of sociology. He 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 uh, prophesied there would be a time that everybody would be very specialized and very very much skill driven. But he said that the, the result will be that people are poor in, in, sp in spirit and in soul. So soul poverty. Um, and, and that resonates enormously. So a lot of people say, yeah, oh, really, the soul poverty is a thing. Now, you could easily make the mistake to suggest that there is a church who is rich in spirit and has all the richness of Christ or God to offer. But the thing I ask immediately is, is the church maybe part of that soul poverty? The fact that our churches are so empty and that even in the churches, many people think it's it's a bit boring. If they're honest, they, they say it's a bit boring. It's it's not the, the real thing I, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for. So then the question is, there is cultural soul poverty. Maybe that's, that's the reason that also even the church is poor in spirit. And that's not the final judgment. That's the beginning of an honest self-examination. I think it's it's not biblical to start with your own richness. And 90% of the Psalms is about poverty in spirit. Um, I'm dry and there's no God and there's no hope. And that, that's that's the, the basis. And then you can look for uh, anything that you would hope is rich and is connected to God and so on. It's not a tale of two stories. The poor people in the city and the rich people in the church. If there is soul poverty, we all suffer from it. And maybe people in, in the city would be glad or are hoping that the church has some alternative to offer. Once we recognize that people within the church are shaped by the same cultural narratives and cultural maladies as those outside the church, we're forced to rethink our assumptions about what people need in order to be spiritually formed. I think it's, it's, it's very important, but to be honest, it, it took me a long time to discover it. I started this whole stand-up theology thing without knowing if it would be uh, successful. It could be easily the outcome that nobody showed up or only three people showed up. So when many people were, were attracted by that, and I even got a couple of invitations from companies and so on, I, th I thought to myself, maybe this is my calling. So you have churches and I have a lot of colleagues, but, but maybe this is my calling. I'm a stand-up theologian. 
inspiring people and that's it and that's difficult enough so that maybe that's my calling and i remember so well that one night i had dinner with about 10 people who attended these stand-up theology programs i wanted to to get some reflections from them so i organized a dinner party and and had some questions and and at one point a lady said you know what the problem is with this stand-up theology thing so i was listening and she said the problem is the moment you shut up and i said Ex explain what you mean and she said well you're you're all the way talking about things that should change things that i should do um, and it's interesting it resonates with my life but but then you stop and my basic question is what's next what should we do what do you want us to do what can i do and all the people around the table were saying the things in the same style so i went home on my bike and i thought this is interesting because these were typical non-christian people talking about discipleship or maybe catechism without knowing the concepts or the ideas but they hear a voice they understand there is a message maybe even a gospel that is life-changing so th this was the point that i I think maybe there's another calling if if you're able if you're gifted to to communicate in the way i can if you're attracting a lot of people maybe it's not enough to end up your program and say thank you for showing up let's have a drink see you in six weeks maybe you should start a sort of community for that part of your audience that has the question what's next what should i do what does this mean to my life and that's what we did um, just just after the, the real COVID crisis in, in the summer. We started a city care community uh, with about uh, 50 or 60 people, um, Christians and non-Christians, um, bounded by the, by the question, what's, what's next? We want to learn something, change something, do something. So that's the next, the next stage. And I'm, I'm very humbled that these things are happening because I've never seen myself as a typical church planter. Even the pastor thing was always difficult for me because I love to communicate and I love to listen and talk to one person or maybe two persons. But the, the typical gathering thing and being the father of a group, actually, I've, I think it difficult. It's not my role. And, and look what's going on around me. There, there again is, is a community, but thank God I'm, I'm blessed with people around me who are more talented in the community building part. So I'm playing a role in that, but it's not all on my shoulders. Otherwise I would run away. <laughs> There's something profound going on here that would be easy to miss. Recall that Amsterdam is extremely secular. Protestants register in the single digits, somewhere between two and 7% of the population. And the vast majority of those aren't white Dutch nationals, but immigrants from Asia and Africa. In that context, the non-Christian people who are asking Tim, what's next, have just the beginnings of a religious imagination. In this context, Tim suspects that counter-catechesis that's good for new or nearly believers is also good for Christians. And he suggests that a key element of this catechetical work is slowing down and going deeper instead of wider in our ministry. To make that a bit more practical, I, I think the church should not talk about everything and, and, and uh, dozens and dozens of themes a year. I think one great theme can be fantastic for a whole year. How to find rest, how to practice with silence and so on. That's, that's not a funny thing for a Sunday afternoon. That's a key issue in today's society. And there's, and there's so much in scripture and in Christian spirituality. But, but don't do it a little bit and then another theme. Again, do not, uh, do not trust too much in, in sermons. Be good in, in practicing one-minute conversations or good uh, videos in about one minute with an interesting idea of, of, of silence. I think you can show so many good Christian uh, sources if you're a bit more creative in its style and a bit more strategic in the things you offer on what times and in what forms. And another idea in relation to silence is if we address silence in a church, most of the time we talk about it. It takes courage to say, listen, people, I want to do something with silence. Now we have an hour and I'll only talk for 12 minutes. But in that 12 minutes or 20 minutes within an hour, you can, you can make a division and ask questions 
you give a good question and think think about let that resonate uh, in in the next three minutes and then you come up with another word so so the idea of a sort of of spiritual workout or workout for the soul that uh, i i don't think that's completely nonsense in a culture like ours my experience is i i i also did some 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 clumsy things and so on just to try and people are are almost always happy if you try at least something with these topics i think most of the time we underestimate the power of our of our basic concepts as as christian it's not only about silence but the but the simple words god loves you the power of these simple words if they're spoken in the right way and and and, and in the right situation uh, they're always encouraging and sometimes they can be life-changing the longer I'm working in the ministry, the more I'm impressed by the power of the things we, we are talking about and we are reading in scripture. It's absolutely powerful. We're making a turn here in the conversation from the first movement to the second, from the contents and practices of counter-catechism to this moral ecology that makes discipleship plausible. I spoke with Denae Pierre about how church planting and renewal networks can function as moral ecologies. Denae wears several hats. She's co-director of the Creek Collective and a co-director for City to City North America. She is also executive director of the Surge Network in Phoenix, Arizona. I asked her to describe the work Surge does in Phoenix. Yeah, we are a network of churches started about 10, 12 years ago, really initially church planters who were getting started and wanted to think more about how do we develop future church planters, future leaders, elders. Um, early on, though, in that process, they realized we don't really just only need new churches. We need um, every member of our church equipped to follow Jesus in all areas of their life. And there's a lot of... Um, challenges and barriers to that even just going back to like how we tend to think about our faith and how we think about the world and how we engage in it and so um initially just developed out a um discipleship training school so it's a nine-month program called surge school that really helps take people through like the biblical story and really trying to challenge some of the western story and some of the impacts of secularism um, on our faith and give people some handlebars to think about how do we demonstrate God's character in our day-to-day -day lives um, through our neighborhoods, through our community, through our workplaces. From that, we've developed a, a seminary program for pastors, a master's degree program in partnership with Covenant Seminary. So we've got pastors from different regions in our city who gather for collaboration and learning and training. We've got um, different affinity groups like Surge Latino training for Spanish-speaking pastors um, and helping their churches be missional, international pastors who are really thinking about how do we transition our faith to the next generation. Our kids are Americanized, but we you know, are still hosting services and going to continue to worship in our original language when we immigrated here. So there's a lot of really great just collaboration, um, primarily around you know, relationship. They want to be together. They want to... Um, participate in the work that God's called them to do in relationship with other pastors, but also all centering around the theme of what does it look like to, to serve congregations, churches that are gospel-centered and outward-focused, that they're able to send uh, God's people into all parts of our city to represent Christ. I assume that these the churches that participate in Surge are all part of denominations or, or other agencies what attracts them to the Surge Network? And what does the Surge Network kind of give them in terms of these relationships that they may not experience in their denominations? I think there's a couple of things. One would be the emphasis of, of the city. Um, what does it look like to um, really minister in our context um, in this particular time and place? And so even while national, you know, things are happening, there's a very much a local story and a local expression in how we respond, how we lead, how we serve through it. So I think the local um, thing has been really important. I also think the emphasis on mission, and we, we, we're still struggling through this, right? We've been able to theologically make shifts that we still struggle to practically make shifts when it, when it comes to, you know, the pastor is not the only minister in the church 
all God's people are, and how do we structure ourselves in order to really equip and release the saints uh, for the work of the ministry. And so I think the theology of like, of, of that really drew drew a lot of us together initially. And then I think it's been the like, now, how do we think about the practice and just the ways in which the pastoral vocation is structured to reinforce in ourselves the very thing that we're trying to resist as we serve congregations and church plants and things like that. So what kinds of things structurally or what kind of habits work against really releasing and equipping the congregations to be on mission in the city? Um, I think there's a lot around the individual sense of calling that's so much a part of the American story, even going back to how we talk about like the revivalists and these great preachers who've um, been at the forefront of American revivals. There's a lot of hero narrative in um, in our understanding of how the spirit has worked throughout American history and the church. And I think that individual sense of calling and um, following God's vision for the church um, again, the, the, we need we need leaders with a vision, but it can very much become something that one leader is pursuing for themselves um, at cost of really discerning what God is calling the community towards. Um, I think I, I mean maybe yeah, even on that same note of vision, like one of the barriers we've had has been, especially for more well-resourced churches who haven't really had significant trouble up until this last year and a half. Um, is there's just this incredible idealism. You know, there's access to really large giving funds, um, beautiful properties, um, kind of a steady pipeline of young leaders. And there's just this idea that we're going to be able to kind of organize in a way that's going to bring about God's kingdom on earth. I do think there's this, you know, one of the challenges we've, we've come up against especially bringing people from all different traditions, right? So, so you know, you've got people from more progressive spaces, more conservative spaces, you know, historic Latino or African-American denominations, and then every imaginable, you know, kind of evangelical uh, group. And there is just this consistent thing among pastors that, you know, accurate ideas will lead to embodiment. And we need to have, of course, deep teaching on truth and deep understanding, even on some of the, you know, points of scripture that are mysterious and people land in different spots. But there's this conviction that if we believe the right idea, that it will lead to living that is going to help people form into the image of Christ. And those aren't, those don't seem to be related. And we're training people to preach and teach with words, truth, but how are we helping them learn how to create a culture that is going to help people not just input words and ideas and thoughts, but actually begin to acclimate themselves to something that to, to the ways of the kingdom as opposed to kind of the lukewarm waters that they're used to swimming in. When we start talking about creating organizational cultures and communities in which Christians can grow in character and conviction, we're describing the work of a moral ecology. The Surge Network is trying to develop among the churches and its fellowships some of the practices that sustained the moral ecologies of marginalized Christian communities in North America and Latin America in recent generations. As I've spent the last four or five years working on my dissertation, looking at some of the, just the prayer practices of the, of African American denominations and churches and church leaders, is at different points in the story is to see how ordinary congregations really were the driving force of a lot of the movement that we've seen happen. So the civil rights, Martin Luther King, I mean, it's amazing even to look at the Montgomery bus boycott and to see how these church moms um, really or did a lot of the base, you know, church basement organizing and preparation and really had to pull you know, Martin Luther King and a couple other um you know, leaders into being the voice and, and, and moving forward. And all over you just see the you know, same thing with what's happening, you know, with Latin America, where there's just people will never know the names of who are faithfully walking with Jesus. And I think one of the tragedies in Christian American leadership is we're looking at how does this planter or this pastor, you know, they're thinking about how do I, you know, achieve great things for God. And it's like really the most the most ordinary, simple, 
mundane Christian practices of neighbor love, sacrifice, caring for the poor, bearing one another's burdens, um, you know, stewarding your benevolence fund well, um, answering the door when the homeless person knocks on the side of the, the door. Like those simple things um, are the great things in the kingdom of God, and they're not reflected in, in our Christian leadership formation. What is reflected is um, this kind of high-level leadership, and then what we measure people by is this capacity for building institutions and leading organizations. And those things are those are needed gifts. Those are things. Um, I mean, I love to build organizations, but the heart of what when we talk about what is actually needed, it's we need good, good local church pastors who like pastoring and who like to do discipleship and evangelism and who who appreciate the mundane everyday parts of Christian ministry. And I think that just kind of gets washed away. But when you look at significant impact of the Christian church in American history, it's like 95% Christians doing that. And then, yeah, there's a voice or two that kind of becomes a convener. But that's usually... Um, coming at the end of a lot of work from a lot of ordinary people. What kinds of practices have you found useful in creating maybe a greater commitment to that kind of mundane ministry in a local setting, or also to developing the habit of opening the door when the homeless neighbor knocks on it, that sort of thing? What kinds of behaviors lead to those kinds of character traits? Yeah, so and we have simple, th- you know, a lot of different networks and church organizations do this, but we've we've really adopted. Um, we call it the the blessed practices. Other people have have used a framework called Bells, but it's just an acronym that kind of says, okay, every week we want you to bless someone from a different culture, um, bless a Christian, bless someone who doesn't know Christ. Every that's B. Every week we want you to listen, listen to God, and listen to another person, and then there's some intentional ideas we give for how do you learn to be a better listener to God and people. E is eat. Eat a meal with somebody not like you and somebody who doesn't know Jesus uh, and another Christian. It's a lot of meals for busy, busy people, right? Um, and so we're challenging to that. Uh, another S is, the S is speak. Speak about Jesus to others. Um, and then the last S is uh, Sabbath, rest. Um, what does that look like? And, and think about rest in in terms of community, like how are we resting with our, with our Christian community? Um, so you know, we, we use that, and we have we've had thousands of people now commit a whole year and go through a whole process, and we have great stories now of people who are elders at local churches who were somebody's bless practice seven years ago, and that's how they came to know Christ, right? So just like great things like that, that it's like these are just simple things we're trying to get get people in the habit of doing every, every week. We've also been talking a lot for the last five years about practices of reconciliation. So, you know, leading up to probably 2014 through 2016, saying, okay, there's, there's some real, you know, especially here in Arizona, um, there's some real challenges to what just different worldviews have seeped them, their ways into the Christian church, um, the way people are consuming media and social media and and cable news um, is really impacting our culture. And so we're going to have to do teaching, but we're also going to have to begin to identify practices that are conducive with to reconciliation or not. And so how we talk about things, our tone, our posture, um, words we don't say, um, things like nonviolent communication, how do we train each other um, to actually communicate nonviolently to one another. Um, You know, things that I think as a parent, you're not, you're kind of thinking about, like, how do you help your kid learn these, these things? But we don't, but sometimes when we get into the church world, working with other adults, we just think Bible study sermon series, right? And it's like, yes, like, right, all day long to Bible studies. But how do you teach this person to actually listen to a different perspective than theirs without it disrupting them emotionally and causing tons of anxiety? And how do you help them identify what's going on inside of them so that they can become calm and listen and and lean in? So I've done a lot around that. And then more recently, because of my dissertation, restorative leadership. 
um, beginning to do a lot of work on like, how do we form leaders to be a restorative, um, a restorative leader and create cult, you know, teams that know how to be restorative presence in broken systems. So what I love about church planting is it's like, hey, let's go out and start a new, a new thing. Um, probably a little too unaware of how you're bringing a lot of the old things with you, but they're at least, they're like, like you're not building off of another, you know, a 30, 40 year old institution. Um, but that's not where most pastors leaders are. And even if you're starting with a core team of anyone who's church, they're coming in with having been part of some pretty longstanding uh, systems. And so how do you help people have the endurance to stay in messy systems and know how to lead over time um, into cultural change, into a place of health, and that reflects more of the kingdom than maybe where it was. And so that's where different practices around enemy love or, you know, what does it look like to live into solidarity with the margins, um, confession, anchoring prayer, how do these practices on a daily and weekly basis as a leader help us sustain with joy being in hard places for 10, 20 or 40 years ahead. The Surge Network is trying to help pastors develop healthy, gospel-centered church cultures that empower ordinary Christians to grow in Christian faith and practice. They're trying to do that across racial and denominational barriers. Danae draws inspiration for this work of restorative leadership from the historic black church. I mean, the most um, volatile examples is what would happen through the civil rights movement and the ways that African-American leaders, um, both in and, and at a lot outside of the church, stepped in to say, hey, this is, this violence has to stop. And what it looked like over 10, 15 years to push toward that, the impact on people's physical, emotional, spiritual health, and then the practices that they developed communally, um, very embodied pre spiritual practices, um, that help them resist kind of the, the furnace that they were, that they were stuck, that they were turned, that the heat was getting turned up as they were fighting against maybe the furnaces they were already living in. I mean, a lot of the violence is coming from professing Christians in power with wealth um, towards the, the margins, um, a lot of government polarization and just like, and to see how a commitment to enemy love and peacemaking really led to these deep, rich prayer practices um, that held people together through significant suffering. And I think that was one that those are some really big aha moments when beginning to say, okay, there's, there's themes of there, there are practices that it's kind of like rules of engagement when you do peacemaking and, um, we don't like, what, what are they? And, and how do we, how do we learn those and teach those to others? Um, so those are, those would be some of the things, but I think a lot of it has been looking at, you know, people in suffering, one of the one of my favorite papers I came across was the evangelical church. It was black evangelicals in South Africa writing to white evangelicals during the apartheid, um, and just the prophetic voice that developed um, out of suffering and pain, um, but always with vision for change and and forward movement. And I think those are those are things right now we desperately need. We're really good at calling out brokenness and sin because there's been so much privilege, even those who are awakening to privilege or to power they've had for a long time, they're awakening on the side of cynicism and calling things out that need to be called out. But there's a privilege in being able to sit at your computer and just be cynical and angry at, at everything you inherited. Um, it's much different than saying, what does it look like to, in the midst of all this pain and suffering, see a small community form, maybe in my living room, of people trying their best to follow Jesus together and live differently. And so that's that's something that you see again and again in the church in the margins. There's not there's not cynicism. There's not you just hear this deep groaning, suffering together, but hopeful orientation of what God is is about and what He's doing and how He's going to ultimately bring about his righteous reign in this earth. So kind of in light of that, is there any final thing, last insight you want to leave us with? You know, one of the things I pray for our pastors and leaders all the time um, is that we would be more concerned with the character of God's people 
um, of the members in our church and their ability to live wisely before a watching world um, than we would be about the behaviors and antics of the world around us. Uh, we need to be aware of them, and we need to know that 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 you know we're living in reciprocal relationship. Like it's not you know we're we're all swimming in 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 the waters of culture, so we want to be aware of them. Um, but if our emphasis could be, how do we as a community really learn how to reenact the gospel story, um, how to um, build little tiny examples of the kingdom of God, anywhere from like how we interact with my church secretary to um, the culture of small groups um, being replicated throughout our church, um, just, just that that would become our prevailing desire that that the church would learn how to feel uh look more like the kingdom of god always imperfect always always falling short um but that 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 we're driven there because of our experience of grace and love with christ to say what does it look like to see that kind of to feel that in our relationships with each other and so that's probably the biggest thing I think that, that I'm convinced um, until we are pursuing that end, I don't think we're going to see the conversion that we pray and hope and long for. Citywide, diverse, trans-denominational networks are not the sum total of a moral ecology, but they are today a crucial part of it. And they are the part that Redeemer City to City is committed to developing alongside local partners like the Surge Network. If you want to learn more about the work we do in the United States and around the world, visit us online at RedeemerCityToCity.com. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. It is written and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Everything else is done by Braden Gregg. Special thanks to Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona for studio space.